Welcome to another edition of the Strategist Corner Podcast. I'm Rob Almeida, Global Investment Strategist and Multi-Asset Portfolio Manager. In this episode, I chat with Brad Rutan and Benoit An about opportunities in the fixed income market and some potential pitfalls that investors may want to consider. The views expressed are those of the speaker and are subject to change at any time. These views are for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a recommendation to purchase any security or as an offer of securities or investment advice. No forecast can be guaranteed. Past performance is no guarantee of future results. Brad and Benoit, welcome to the podcast. Good to be here. Hello. Well, the income is back in fixed income after tumultuous 2022. Uh, the two-year treasury back to, I think, it's 2007 high, so we haven't seen these levels in a decade and a half. Right. What's We know what the catalyst is. We know what's driving it. It's obviously inflation that was bigger than expected, stickier than expected. But from your perspective as two leading fixed income experts, what are the dynamics driving yields, and what's your perspective on it, and how should clients be thinking about it? Benoit, I'll go to you first. Thanks. Well, it's a really great starting point uh, for fixed income. Uh, obviously, that happened with a bit of pain. Last year was yeah. horrendous. Uh, that's what A lot I, of pain. That's what I would call I mean, the, the great uh, valuation reset. Mm -hmm. And it was indeed quite brutal in global markets. But going forward, there are a lot of reasons to be more constructive on fixed income. As you know, your starting yield is absolutely critical in shaping up your return expectations in fixed income, not only tactically, but strategically. So there would, would have to be a lot of things going wrong going forward for fixed income not to do well at all. So that's a really good position to be in. All right. Well, we're going to get into some of those. So let me go to you, Brad, yeah. first. I mean, I think it's just the uncertainty around the Fed, right? I mean, it's... I think for all the time and effort we put into trying to guess where Fed funds rate or t 10 years. Yeah, the market, is, you mean. Is, right, the market, not just MFS, but just the, the broad market. You know, when you look at Fed funds futures at the beginning of any year and see what they're pricing in for the Fed over the concurrent two years, I mean, it, it's a chart like my eight-year-old drew it. Like there's, right. there's no rhyme or reason to, to the path of Fed funds futures and the actual path of Fed funds, but the closer we get to terminal rate, right, everything converges, and so we're we're near there. But but I think the the massive spike last year was uncertainty about the Fed. Obviously, uh, they were late to the game, and the the, the massive spike in inflation. But the Benoit's point, um, you know, the income is back in income, right? And well, and from my perspective, what I find fascinating, you know, having to look at both equity and fixed income. So it's not just that. Income is back in fixed income, and yields are at great levels. To your point, Benoit, but if you think if you compare that to your uh, earnings yield right. in the S and P, it's it's close to one hundred percent on the yeah. short end of the curve, which is really remarkable. And from my perspective, rendering fixed income materially more attractive than equities through that lens. But let's. I mean, sixty forty was dead, right? I mean, nothing but a year ago, and now right. we're talking this. Right, right. So let's let's get into maybe some of the issues that could go wrong before we get into the the attributes and what parts of fixed income 
you guys are favoring and the department's favoring, et cetera. But let's talk a little bit about maybe some of the fears you're hearing from clients, the things that they're worried about. Maybe inflation's going to be greater than what the market thinks, rather than what the Fed thinks. If you compare that to you've got an inverted yield curve, maybe fears out there that we hear relative to the market is discounting or telling us two different things. So let's just start there. Yeah, so what is it that the fixed income investors don't like? Uh, number one, a you know, aggressive central banks. Mm -hmm. uh, so there's a risk still, all right? Maybe that risk is getting less and less as we get closer to the finishing line. But to Brad's point, from five to six percent is a big difference than one yeah, to five. That's right, yeah. yeah. Uh, but still, the jury is out. We're still in a hearing some central banks talking tough, including in Europe. The ECB is the, probably yeah. the most vocal central bank at this point. Um, fixed income investors don't like inflation. Um, and we thought we were lined up uh, to have a nice uh, disinflation process, but there have been some bumps on the road, clearly, lately, with the data disappointing. Uh, so looks like it looks a bit more sticky than we thought. So that also puts a little bit of a, a cloud or in fixed income uh, near term. And I've got to mention the big R word, recession, uh, because of course, if the recession turn out to be much more severe than anticipated, then you have a risk on spreads as well. You know, you're, obviously, there's, we've been talking about duration, but obviously credit risk is a big uh, part of that, yeah. that story yeah, well, as well. Yeah, sovereign yields would yeah. fall and bonds would rally. On the flip side, your, your corporates, your credits, et cetera, would be... Uh, more susceptible to some pain. Yeah. Right, because that, cause that all-in yield we've said is so attractive, you know, um, whether it's 4.9 in a corporate or 8-plus in a high yield, it has two parts to it, right? It has a rate and a spread. And the fear from a lot of clients is, well, we, we, we believe that if the Fed stops hiking and is on pause before they cut, that there's a good case for rates to gravitate down under that scenario. But somewhere near the end of that, right, is then you have rates move one part moving down and the spread part moving up, right? right? And you have that credit sell-off and how steep is it going to be? How, how, you know, high yield spreads, what should they be at given that, you know, a lot of these companies are real low quality, maybe should have been taken out in 2020, never were. So what's that? Is it 400 basis points? Is it 300? Is it 500? And, and that's the worry. Yeah. If it's 300, you can survive with a, with a positive return still. And high yield. If it's 500, now you're talking trouble. Right. Which to me is the part that, in particular, the equity market is not thinking about, right? So, from my perspective, the shock of 2022 was obviously inflation, higher rates, and cash becoming a competitive asset and creating a devaluation amongst all risk assets and why correlations went, went to one. But it's still centered on that narrative, not just for fixed income, but I think for equities too, and also for, for credit, right? So what it's maybe the market I think is not thinking about is to Benoit's point about rates going from, you know, from very low levels to now attractive levels, the transfer or the transmission mechanism in fixed rate economies like the US, like big parts of Europe, it's a delay. Right. It's 12 to 18 to 24 months. And the weighted average cost of capital for every company or every enterprise on the planet just went up by a lot. Right. And so- And as, consumers too, right? It, for everyone. Right, for everyone. For everyone. And there's going to be enterprises, public, private, 
government, corporate, that are going to struggle under a much higher, not just cost of capital regime, but cost of labor, cost of goods, increased spend, all right. that. I mean, look at the, I think we're not fully wrapped up for earnings season, right? But we're pretty close pretty to close. it. And, you know, the numbers tell a story, right? Revenues are great. Revenues are up across the board. Earnings are down. Right. And obviously- High single digit revenue, but with negative, low single digit earnings. Right. And yeah. you don't have to be an economist to, to figure out what that means is your cost of goods, your labor, your uh, your interest expense. And on top of that, tax rates for corporates are going up 2 to 3% this year as we retire some of those tax provisions. So add that all up, and the consumer is keeping that revenue number going up, but the company is having trouble with the other side, the cost of goods, and you're seeing margins fall. And that's why maybe fixed income uh, looks much better positioned right. in the multi-asset portfolio right. environment uh, because we're talking about a lot of downside risk to equities right now, all right? Uh, that, that argument about profit margins. So fixed income is back as an income provider, right? Uh, and at least you have that defense, uh, that defensive element yeah. uh, and that cushion yeah. on the valuation front. I would uh, always characterize fixed income as asymmetric, uh, which is a good thing, whereas equities are probably a lot more you know, symmetric, right? Uh, when you said 60, 40, yeah, investors were way underweight fixed income. Right. So fixed the 60, 40 is back with a lot more fixed income than they had, right. <laughs> basically. Right. So within that 40, so let's just think about a fixed income portfolio in 100% increments, and obviously without knowing an individual's asset liability mismatch and income needs and and all that sorts of thing. But putting all that aside, when you think about the opportunity set within fixed income, I'm not going to ask you to rank per se, but let's just talk about attractive versus less attractive sectors. So obviously high yield sounds like it might be a little bit more on the unattractive side, just given the increasing default risk and probabilities. Right. Uh, what do you think about on the attractive yeah, and uh, Rob, we spent some time in Europe together uh, not so long ago, and you heard it there yourself, right? Uh, Euro credit uh, looks quite attractive, and uh, investment grade. Yeah, investment grade Euro IG. And walk walk me through why. Well, so the number one, the recession risks were uh, heavily discounted in Europe through spreads. You know, spreads had corrected quite a bit. Uh, now the actual outlook in Europe is. Uh, believe it or not, improving. There was a lot of drama and and I think uh, fear about Europe <laughs> going down. And now we've uh, we've seen a bounce back in in macro fundamentals, uh, which is quite positive. And the ECB is talking tough, but it's probably getting near the end in terms of market pricing anyway, which I think is quite supportive for European duration. Uh, there's a lot priced in on that curve. So you put everything together, the valuation picture, the, the improvement in fundamentals and the ECB cruising to the end of its journey. That's The stars are aligning for European IG credit, uh, the yeah. way we see it. I'm going to take a quick pivot to stay on central banks for a minute. Don't you think that the marketplace puts way too much emphasis on what central banks may do or even what they will do when ultimately what drives the shape of the curve, what drives long interest rates, it's economic growth, it's tax receipts. Give me some color on that. Yeah, yeah. So it's um, it depends on what time horizon you have, I guess. Sure. The, the longer the time horizon, uh, I think the less central banks should matter. Uh, 
uh, in the near term, and uh, sadly, the way we observe it last year is the uh, central banks were the, the only game in town, right? So, uh, but we everything works in cycles, including markets. Uh, so, I would hope to see a new market cycle where central banks are taking the back seat. And ideally, we're going to talk less about central banks than we had over the past couple of years. So I think you're going to be right pretty soon. Uh, we're yeah. going to refocus on the long-term fundamentals, the, the strength of you know, earnings, the, the growth dynamics, and so on, and less about rates, inflation, and central banks. It's just interesting to me because 2022, you say that you know it was um, central banks were in charge, and I guess my my pushback rebuttal to that would be volatility occurs when the market has to reprice for mistaken assumptions, and the Correct. mistaken assumption was inflation was was transient. Oops, uh, turns out it was bigger and 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 stickier. But you can think of a country. Tell me if I'm wrong. Cause you're the economist. You can think of a country almost like a country, right? It has revenues, it has liabilities, and interest rates, not unlike maybe an equity price for a company, it's just a proxy for what that country is going to earn. Is that fair or unfair? Yeah, so I said central banks were a big driver. I never said they were credible. Uh, <laughs> uh, in fact, uh, you're absolutely right. Uh, the Fed surprised everybody, and the Brad, you said that earlier, the Fed surprised itself, right? right? I mean, they right. they woke up and realized they were totally uh, way behind the curve, I guess. Uh, yeah, so go, going forward, uh, that that should disappear. Yeah. Right. I think half the problem is is the amount of, of narrative coming out of them that will then drive more assumptions, which then will be wrong, which will create more volatility, right? I mean, there used to be an era where the Fed didn't speak as much. You didn't get the notes. You didn't get the presser. And now there's so much coming out of them and the market tries to digest it all. It's going to get it wrong. And then when it is wrong, you get these just spikes of volatility. So Yeah, I guess it's not like anything else that's contributing to short-term right. noise and more and more people acting on that. And it just gets harder for them to discern between what's noise and what's material relevant right. information over the long term. Hey, I, want, I want to give them credit. It's not easy. Uh, you need to find the right balance between... Uh, surprising the market a little bit, because if everything is already fully integrated and fully discounted, actually monetary policy becomes ineffective. Uh, mm -hmm. But you don't want to come across as not knowing what you're doing and totally being uh, uh, have no credibility and, and make those big policy swings. And that also the other extreme. So uh, finding the right tone and uh, the right balance in the face of that macro volatility that we've observed, I mean, it's pretty hard. Uh, so right, that's, sure. that's my one-minute yep. credit to central banks because right. it hasn't been easy for them. No, very fair, very fair. Let's shift back to the credit side, credit risk. Brad, I want to come to you, spread. So whether it's investment – well, we talked a little bit about high yield. Let's maybe right. talk a little bit about investment grade. Benoit talked about that in Europe. Talk a little bit about that in the U.S., are U.S. investment-grade corporates as attractive as European? It doesn't sound like they are, but maybe what's your perspective? I think they're attractive. So a U.S.-based investor mm -hmm. is, unfortunately, they don't buy much from a global bond perspective. They're very uh, U.S. dollar, U.S. bond. But uh, on a relative basis, I, I agree that European investment grade is more attractive from a valuation perspective. But, I mean, the asset class has, has you know, call it a 5% starting yield. 
at uh, today's level. Today's okay. level, yep. Uh, you know, good duration if, in fact, rates fall. Yep. The, you know, the technicals are decent. Fundamentals are good. Right. So I think it's an attractive asset class. Even high yield, though, like we're finding opportunities there. Sure. You know, sometimes secondary market even where – so it's just the index, that the universe of them. There's so many uh, bonds with fake yield. There's so many bonds where we, we don't believe they'll uh, achieve that yield that, that's on the, uh, you know, on, the, on, the, on the bond. I'd say less attractive than – Brad is making a really good point. The higher the micro risk – the higher the credit risk, the more significant security selection becomes. Right. Because the cost of right. picking the wrong company <laughs> becomes really high, right? Uh, so that when you think high-yield investing, it's hard to me to think index investing, you know, uh, cuddling your benchmarks doesn't work no. uh, because you've got to be very strong at security selection when it comes to high-yield, especially right now with that micro vol. Yeah, I mean, t to me, the, my simple, I guess, angle on all of this is in 2022, we saw aggregate demand that was too high. So central banks reacted. And it's still too high. So yes, you're not paying 8 9% more for a, a salad downstairs, but you're paying five or six percent more. So aggregate demand is is still too high, and central banks' actions are working to reduce aggregate demand. And in order to do that, what has to happen is malinvestment in the real economy that accumulated over so many years has to be corrected. So to your point, particularly in deeper parts of the credit markets, you need to see that if you want to call it natural destruction or natural selection, right? And, and company failures, because I, I guess at, at a high level, consumers, there's a high degree of consumption. Some of that was savings from the uh, pandemic stimulus, but a big part is because you've got a very healthy, robust labor market. To me, that's a function of there's not enough workers relative to the amount of companies seeking labor. So you need to have that natural destruction process work its way through, which introduces risk into corporate bond selection. Right. And, and the Fed didn't allow that to happen. Right. For years. For years. Right. And and as an active manager, while we're biased, I mean, that t to us, that, that, you know, obviously we don't want people to be out of work. We don't want any random company to, to, to go bankrupt, but, we, but that's a natural part of capitalism. That's why we all get into this industry. And it excites us, right, that that is coming back into play and that, that separation of the haves and have-nots, both on the uh, fixed income side and, and the equity side, um, is in play this year and definitely next year. I mean, reflecting on what happened in 2020, uh, with obviously the easy job benefit of hindsight, uh, central banks overreacted. Governments overreacted, and yeah. because they were faced with a shock that was not easy to assess, and it, and it looked quite dramatic. Uh, but you ended up with uh, perpetrating that zero cost of capital and liquidity you know, flushing uh, all over the place, and that's that's how you end up with a really weird business cycle right now, which is what we have. Yeah. Look at unemployment and look at the strength of the labor market in the U.S., which doesn't budge at all. Right. 
and I haven't, I've never seen this before. Right. Which, back to my point, is incompatible with getting aggregate demand down and what central banks are looking for, yeah. right? No, that makes sense. I mean, I, just think, thinking back, you know, the, the purpose of, to Brad's point, capitalism is to allocate society scarce resources, and that was done incrementally less uh, in the 2010s because of, of QE. And the purpose of a recession is just to rebalance imbalances that accrued over time. And there is no free lunch. So we now know the cost of the stimulus package. It was 8 9% inflation. But there's still some leftover on the bill Correct. that has to right. get paid, right? right. <laughs> Which is there's going to be some companies that can't out-earn their new and higher cost of capital. And that's going to be material to risk markets. And a cost of capital that could rise higher. Right. right as we enter, if the recession Not happens. just because of Fed funds, you mean, but Not because of, of Fed funds. Yeah. Because if we enter a recession and the market prices spreads higher, that company then is, is to reissue debt yeah. uh, would be incrementally higher. And that's where it really gets fun. For yeah. us, because that's what we enjoy doing. And not just she costs it up, but it costs the equity too, equity's currency. Yeah, 100%. So you right. add those two. I mean, in 2022, I mean, I mean, it's consistent with all the, you know, highest jump in rates in 40 years, but the weighted average cost of capital for companies in the S&P 500 jumped the most in four decades in 2022. Correct. That's a big adjustment that it's going to feed through over the next 12 to 18 months. I think you also have to wonder, you know, if we had all-time high corporate bond issuance in the U.S., I think it was pretty high. Last year? To, uh, 2020. Okay, got it. Right, because the Fed basically. Yes, of course. Yep. Uh, and then that's come down about 35% 2021, 2022. Fast forward to this year, you know, well, we came out of the gate with a nice strong month of issuance. Overall, the longer we get, I wouldn't expect issuance to be hitting any records this year, um, especially if the cost of capital is high and goes higher. And I think that also gets that security selection that if there aren't as many bonds issued out there, um, you know, the ability to, to, to source trading through them, find them in the secondary market or primary market uh, becomes advantageous for a firm like yourself. Yeah. Well, so I, I think what I'm hearing is fixed income is attractive on an absolute basis and on a relative basis to other asset classes. But caution or selection discretion is still warranted, particularly in the deeper parts of, of the credit markets. Right. You know, two areas that we didn't cover that I want to touch on quickly, because uh, Benoit, you talked a lot about it in our travels in Europe last month, was EMD, and Brad, you've talked about it a lot over the last couple of years, is municipals. So maybe Benoit, you first, a couple of points on emerging market debt. Yeah, why well, emerging markets, I, that's part of the same story of emerging markets being back after horrendous uh, time in, in markets last year. Uh, the dollar seems to be looking like hitting a wall maybe going forward, and that would be positive for emerging market assets. Uh, then also the uh, narrative around China's reopening is also boosting overall investor sentiment towards uh, the asset class. Uh, global growth is actually, uh, expectations are being revised upwards, not downward anymore. The fear of a global recession uh, is disappearing, and that should ultimately benefit emerging markets. Yeah, and, and I guess maybe to add to that, you know, the it, we seem to be in a world that we have 
outgrown physically, right? So we're short on manufacturing capabilities. We're short on clean energy assets. We're short on materials that we need to build those sorts of things. And net, net, EM and aggregate or emerging market countries are exporters of, right. of those sorts of things. Um, so Brad, talk a little bit about Muni's, uh, maybe credit quality, how you're thinking about it with, how you're talking about it with clients today. I mean, I think the, the, when you look at the asset class and you look at the fundamentals, so they were beneficiaries of the COVID stimulus, right? Sure. Many, many munis are, are, pl are flush with cash. State revenues you would have thought would have gone down in 2020. They went up versus 19. They went up again last year and in the year prior. So fundamentals look fairly good. So tax receipts. Tax receipts. Yep. yep. Except I did get some tax money back from the state this this past month. I was confused by it. Don't worry. You're going to yeah. get it back uh, next <laughs> Probably. year. Yeah, don't worry. Don't worry. Um, Valuations, yields are great. Right? I mean, yields and munis, high yield uh, are, are great. Compare them to taxable, compare them to history. The only thing that, that's uh, a miss is the technicals. You know, we went through the biggest outflow cycle in munis last year. We had, I forget the number, it was $120 billion maybe roughly around there. The, in, the asset class. The asset class. Mm -hmm. like all, out of all funds and ETFs, you know, you, you think of the Meredith Whitney uh, cycle where we had that massive outflow cycle. It was three times as big as that. And it was the longest one, just week after week, you know, three, four, five billion dollars came out of that asset class. So that technical uh, really headwind because it's a retail dominated asset class. What we know is that will end. It will probably end maybe around when the Fed pauses, right? And, and investors stop fearing that rate heights. And you add good fundamentals to good yields and get maybe a technical tailwind. And I think it's a, it's a attractive asset class for sure. Yeah, because it just doesn't have the, certainly doesn't have the profit margin risk, but it doesn't have the capital and labor risk no. like corporates. Right. And the cyclicality. I mean, the, the, the uh, you know, sensitivity to the business cycle, which is what you want to have, I guess, uh, in the face of rising recession risks. Right. You want the longer duration, high quality. Yeah. Right. And tax-free. Low default rates, high recovery rates, yeah. and uh, good fundamentals valuations. We just need that that outflow cycle to turn to inflow. Right, right. What haven't I asked? What am I missing? What haven't we talked about? I think uh, dispersion, uh, dispersion in global fixed income, uh, also very interesting developments when... No, we put our hat as global multi-sector fixed income managers. There's a lot of disparity, uh, a lot of dislocation, not only within an asset class. We talked about security selection, but I mean, globally and regionally, I think the U.S. versus Europe uh, trade is quite interesting. Uh, it looks like Credit in the U.S. has actually uh, bounced back quite aggressively. Uh, European is a bit of a laggard, but that's actually a good thing. Maybe <laughs> there's valuation left in Europe, whereas uh, in, in the U.S. it probably looks a bit more stretched, in my view. Right, right. Okay. Brad, anything from you? I'd say correlations, right? I mean... Stock was, bond correlation, yeah, you stock mean? stock bond. I mean, okay. that, that was the uh, the death nail last year. It was just that, that rise to one or... 0.6 if you look at a two-year or whatever. And I think you're right, it, it, you know, partly caused by cash. I think also that if we think about correlation, if we think about 
equities and fixed income having opposite sign sensitivities to growth and unemployment. Mm -hmm. So growth goes down, bad for equities, generally uh, okay for bonds. And then same sign sensitivities to inflation and real Fed funds rate. Last year, uh, what was the story? It was inflation, uh, massive volatility, and that same sign sensitivity sent them through the roof. But but if if 2023 turns into a growth story, a negative growth story, then that should help the correlation uh, between fixed income and equity come down. Yeah, so what, what I think people, at least in the equity market, are missing is when you have inflation bursts like we had last year, and you've seen this throughout cycles, inflation is obviously what you're paying at the register, right? which is a function of price and the consumer's willingness to pay that price. So how does that pricing power flow through the P&L? So pricing power goes up, profit margins go up. It works the other way too. When inflation's rolling downhill, as it is now, we can argue magnitude, direction, level, et cetera. What that means is companies are then giving price, right. but the cost side doesn't roll as quickly. And that's when you start to see margins fall. And that's that negative sign that you're talking about. Exactly. I mean, and, and you've already seen them start to fall. Yeah. Even with revenues up, yep. uh, it may be prices up. And now you switch to, to the next environment where right? You know, those revenues come down and yeah. your costs are still sticky. Yeah. Um, then you get even further margin. Yeah. If you look at cost of goods sold on a growth rate right. and look at revenues on a growth rate, COGS are higher than revenues, which leads to, in the past, has always led to lower, which is just intuitive. Right. If your cost of doing business is higher than your money coming in the door, that's going to be a difficult... My um, nine-year-old understands that. <laughs> well, guys, uh, thank you so much. We're going to do this again in six to nine months, whether you like it or not. Um, we're going to review uh, where you're right, where you're wrong. Love but uh, no, seriously, thank you very much. Appreciate it, Rob. Thank you. I think Brad and Benoit make a compelling case that bonds offer a better risk-reward profile today than they have in more than a decade and probably deserve a larger share in many investors' portfolios. Though... Against an uncertain economic and market backdrop, selectivity should be pretty important.